On the Empire Podcast this week, knowing us, the Empire Podcast team, knowing you, Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge. Aha! We also get to grips with the latest big screen adventures of Compu, Foggy and Clegg in Red 2. We hide behind our sofa and talk the country, although only briefly, you'll soon find out why. Ask Only God Forgives if it wants a fight and chat to Percy Jackson himself, Mr. Logan Lerman. All that, plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the only film podcast that watched a documentary about mega tsunamis last night and is now so utterly depressed slash terrified that we're doing this intro in full Frogman gear. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, back in the Pod Host's chair after two weeks away, two weeks in which I missed a chance to discuss The World's End and The Wolverine, and I'm thoroughly kicking myself. Mind you, I did buy a t-shirt that has the Avengers on the front, but has pandas, so swings around if that's in it. And if you do want to hear us discuss The World's End in huge spoilerific detail, our spoiler special with Simon Pegg, Nick Frost and Edgar Wright is currently scheduled for August 26th. August 26th, which will let the US have a chance to see it. That might change, but for the time being, do mark that date in your diary. That date again, August 26th. And if you want a spoiler special dedicated to the Wolverine and perhaps the X-Men films in general, do let us know, because we perceive there might be a lack of interest. But you never know. You never know. Right, as ever, I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our resident art house guru, a man whose idea of a rockin' good time is to kick back with a Griffiths double bill. And we're not talking Derek or Terry, we're talking... Your actual DW. It's Phil DeSemlian. Hello. Hi, Chris. This actually happened, didn't it? At the weekend? No. According to your brother, Nick. Huh. No, but it feels like a double bill. It's one film. It feels like about four <laughs> <What>? films. Or <laughs> The Hobbit. Yeah, I watched Birth of a Nation for uh-huh. the first time. And I was staggered by how racist it is. Yeah. If they were releasing it now, it would be out on White Ray. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Wow. One may argue that you shouldn't make jokes about these things, and I would be one of those people, but I but don't did. know how to process some yeah. of the stuff I saw in that film. Yeah. Equally, it's quite difficult to reconcile the fact that it is a you know, virtuoso display of filmmaking genius that established with the grammar for modern-day filmmaking. So, tough. Uh, next up is a man whose idea of a rockin' good time is to kick back with a Farscape box set, blissfully ignorant of little things like production values, good acting, or storytelling. It's James Dyer. You're an idiot. Farscape is superb. It is the pinnacle of Australian science fiction series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right up there with Home and Away, 2130. And, underrated too. And Future Neighbours. <laughs> Honestly. Don't, don't. Really? You know. Yeah, it's science fiction with Muppets. Dominar Rigel is, a, is, a, is from the Jim Henson Company. It's very good. With his whiskers, yeah. That's right, with his whiskers. Very good. It's the farting Hynerian Emperor. It's very good. I'll be completely honest here. I haven't seen a single episode of Farscape. <laughs> it is superb. That's such a good band name, farting Hynerian Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, did you uh, check out Farting last night? They were amazing. No, in all seriousness, I am, I'm a big fan of Farscape, and I'm going to drop a Farscape bomb right here and say that uh, Nathan Fillion was actually up for the lead role in Farscape at one point before it went to Ben Browder, which was very good, because then he went on to go and do Five Lines. Would that have made Farscape even better than it already is? That, is, or? that would be impossible. Uh, last but by no means least is a man whose idea of a rockin' good time is to kick back with a copy of Adobe Premiere and cut together a double bill of the Empire podcast, all the while cursing us for our... Uh, hang on, what's that say? What does that say? Incompetence. Incompetence. Okay. It's Ali Plum. What's so joyful about that intro is that, of course, Adobe Premiere is a video editing software. Oh, for fuck's sake. I think you're fine. I didn't know. I yes. wasn't. Is it. I, I was, I was going to write that. Is it Audacity? But no, that's what we record on. But it's what's, Adobe Audition. Oh, that's it. I knew yes. it began with an A and a U and it had Audition after the end. We Rick. don't record to Audacity. We record to Audition. Oh, God. So what's Audacity? Uh, Audacity is the shareware freebie editing software, which is like, I don't know, um, writing a novel with a rock and another <laughs> rock. Amazing. Like Dan Brown does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is the equivalent. Of Dan Brown of podcast. Hey, quick, Chris, call the uh, joke helpline on 4444. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no idea what's happening, do you? I don't know what's happening. Don't know what's happening. It's I'm difficult. My... There's so many different sorts of software. There's at least four. When you're writing this with no knowledge of anything, it's very difficult. I, 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 I can it's imagine that's happening. Yeah, I know how you feel. It's like we're, we live on a desert island. And Ali's like the sort of amazing technologically advanced man that's come from space we just yes. look at him and just think he'll take care of the things it's, that we do wrong it's three men juggling prime grenades him. and I'm the one who has to catch them as they drop <laughs> them on the floor and put the pins back in I'm whittling you in effigy right now it's weird well on the off chance that anyone's still listening uh, it's time for some of your questions you've been sending them in uh, via Twitter all week uh, at Chapman CMC asks well doesn't ask he, he rebukes or she uh, no mention of the utterly charming umbrella short before Monsters University. This is a blue umbrella the, uh, the, that ran before Monsters University. I haven't seen Monsters University, but I assume that this is some kind of Resident Evil prequel uh, about the evil Umbrella Corporation who Im- unleashed a tyrant virus on an unwitting populace. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. Excellent. It's a bit of a Sounds great. Pixar, it has to be said. It's actually uh, about a, uh, an umbrella that falls in love with another umbrella during a rainstorm in the middle of New York. Uh, mm. It's directed by a man called Sashka Unseld. And it combines two of my favourite things that are very hard to say. Uh, pa- pareidolia. Uh, does anybody know what that is? It's French doilies. Uh, no, pareidolia is when you see faces in things. So in the front of a car, you see that as a face, uh, that toast that looks like Jesus. That's, Isn't that anthropomorphism? No, that's slightly different. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Another thing you can't say. I can't, that's a horrible word to say. I, I think we should ban it from the podcast. That's when you imbue something with human characteristics, i.e. it becomes a human-like thing that talks and walks and thinks and eats and all that kind of stuff. Like Chris. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas uh, pareidolia <laughs> is when you see in, for example, uh, the blue umbrella, you see uh, the bottom of a drain pipe has a face and mm. then the bin smiles and anyway the umbrella if the bottom of a drain pipe does have a face you're living Stephen King's it so you want to watch that <laughs> for me I enjoyed it I thought it was very sweet very lovely uh, it, it was well done but it reminded me quite a lot of Paperman from last year which was stunning the Oscar winning short in the beginning of Wreck-It Ralph which combined a mixture <laughs> of 3D animation and 2D animation to create this kind of flowing both very personable and very detailed black and white world, 1940s, which was about um, a, a boy falling for a girl and uh, winning her love by throwing her um, paper planes. Mm. Is that available on the internet to watch? You can watch Paper Man online right now on YouTube. Uh, they released it in advance of the Oscars. But uh, you cannot watch The Blue Umbrella without going to see Monsters University, which is still in many, many, many cinemas. Why don't we, in a live journalistic study, tweet a link to that check our Twitter feed we'll tweet a link to that short film because that's yes. really good my favourite thing about the Blue Umbrella it, it's great I mean the, uh, the the CG looks photoreal which they set out to do so it looks like it was actually shot live action pretty much apart from obviously the, the, the umbrellas with the faces on but my favourite thing was the soundtrack the score uh, by John Bryan and uh, it's based on a son of songs like the riff by a singer called Sarah Jaffe who um, and I've been I've just checked on YouTube. It's finally available. It's finally out there, mm. which is which is great. This beautiful, lilting, lyrical thing. I, I I liked it. I would say that it's not as good as Presto the Rabbit. Just to put that out there. Also, I would say that like a lot of Pixar's animation, it's very very inspired, probably more than anything, by the Red Balloon, the uh, the thirty minute French short film. Which if you haven't seen, you should see as soon as possible. Also on YouTube. Also on YouTube. Worth seeing on a bigger screen than that. If, well, you can watch YouTube on Everything your TV. Everything has to come back to French cinema with you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Coincidentally, it Dreadful. does. I see what uh, Phil says next, then, in that case, because this is uh, from At Burnt Copper, uh, who says, 
at McKelvey started it as Jamie McKelvey, the uh, the artist behind the Young Avengers, um, who was on Twitter yesterday saying, you know, what's the best third act of an action film recently? So Bernard Copper asks, what's the best third act of an action film recently? Amor. <laughs> the pigeon comes in, takes the house. I, it's like the raid, but sort of slightly smaller and with feathers. Yeah. Yeah? Do you want more? No, we can't possibly top that answer. Okay. I, I, I thought you'd go down that, that avenue. Boulevard, maybe. Keeping uh, with a bird theme, Alan Partridge. More on that story later. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think this is symptomatic of a problem that modern action films do have, which is that they all tend to, if not unravel, at least lose momentum in the third act. Now, I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think partly they often get sort of bogged down in that they've got so many ideas and they all kind of crash together and they don't they don't really know how to weave that tapestry into a conclusion uh equally i think you get fatigue with a lot of these films i mean i know it's controversial i found that with the avengers i got uh action fatigue by the end of that third act uh, once again james you're a flaming idiot uh <laughs> the avengers has the best third act of a blockbuster in the last five years probably because it ha- it it infuses his action beats with great character moments I absolutely and it's hugely entertaining, and I'm sorry, but you're an idiot. <laughs> Fair enough. I, definitely, the great character moments I'm totally with. It's it's more the sort of grey, faceless, tedious action aliens that I don't like. But it, it's not just that. I mean, all three of uh, of Nolan's Batman films have slight third act problems. Batman Begins has severe third act problems. Uh, yeah. Star Trek Into Darkness has third act problems. I think Iron Man Three has a much better third act than Iron Man's 1 or 2, both of which suffered from problems yeah. in that department. But it seems to be a theme, whereas if you go back to sort of, you know, the heyday of 80s action films, you know, look at your diehards, look at your Predator, for example. Predator has a masterful third act. You know, what it whittles it down to this mano-a-mano confrontation between and the alien, perfectly paced. You know, it seems... Is it a lost art? Is the third act a lost art? Well, it's interesting, because I was watching... I was at Star Wars Celebration last weekend, and uh, probably the high point for me was an outdoor screening of Return of the Jedi mm. in this Endor-like park um, in, in Essen, in Germany. And uh, on the way back from it, Ian Freer was talking about how Roland Emmerich, for example, has attributed the last act, the third act of Return of the Jedi, which obviously cuts between mm. Luke, the Vader, and Emperor, the Ewoks it's versus godly. the Empire, and the amazing space battle and the assault on the Death Star, um, as as really being the the, the 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 father of the modern blockbusters. So many blockbusters these days, including many of Emmerich's own films, do that cross-cutting mm. thing. The Avengers does it. Uh, Independence Day does it. A lot of films do it. And um, but it is such a perfect third act. That movie gets a lot of flack for the Ewoks. I don't know why they're fishy little bastards. <laughs> um, they really are. Um, but you know, it's such a great third act. Mm. It has spectacle. It has action. It has adventure. It has romance. And the Vader Luke Emperor stuff is astonishing. So, uh, so that, that that's an example of a great third act. But it's interesting you say that because that is a third act that they try to replicate in the Phantom Menace and get horrendously wrong. Yeah. Because they have the three exact same elements. You've got the ground battle, you've got the space battle, you've got the lightsaber battle. Phantom Menace has arguably the best lightsaber battle in the entire saga, coupled with an incredibly sort of flat and tedious space battle. And, you know, a, a quite bland ground battle as well. And But it's not just that those two elements don't work. It's that they're not woven together with the drama that Mark and I think manages with with Return of the Jedi just the, just the cuts between them work so well in Jedi it's a, it's a masterful film you know what anyone who doesn't like Return of the Jedi should be killed I think we should go on record as saying that I don't see how that's <laughs> in any way controversial. Say, yeah, good or enforceable. Uh, the other thing that we've had recently is cities getting exploded. Starting to darkness. That's got uh, is it San Francisco that blows up? Yeah. We've got Iron Man Three has docks, so that's different. But you've got Man of Steel has Metropolis. Uh, that's got third act problems. That's got third act problems. But we keep seeing time and time again cities exploding, and you'd rather be 
for me, I'd rather have there's a character that I love so much that's in risk of being killed. The two people who are battling out at the end, or three people, whatever, that are battling out, that can still be impactful away from a city, away from that kind of landscape. If there's people involved who I care about, whether they die or don't die, be it them or the people that they're protecting, I just don't want to see yet another cityscape blow up. Chris made a very interesting observation after Man of Steel, which I thought was was quite telling, that nobody cares about a city, people care about people. Like, watching uh, Zod and Kal-El knock themselves through buildings, uh, while lovely to look at, is there's not a lot of jeopardy in that. Uh, and as Chris said, there's, there's that one moment at the end of, of Superman 2, uh, where they throw the bus full of people, and Superman has, has more humanity... Uh, than a thousand, you know, skyscrapers falling down because it has that that individualized sort of human parallel element. He even says it. You know, Superman even says it. He says, "No, the people." He even says that. Yeah, mm. and then I, he, he does I might, to stop it. Might just say that if you live in New York, for instance, or if you're American, you might have a different approach to that because it means yeah. it has more yeah. emotional resonance, I suppose. But Which just slightly like, surprises me about how glib some of the destruction has been lately like it doesn't seem to be mm. making any particular comment on anything it's just like let's destroy New York again and it seems to be they're not doing it because they you know, not to par- going to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park now they're, they're, they're destroying cities not because they should they're destroying them because they can mm. and that doesn't really make for great entertainment so. well I know for you know Thor the Dark World is going to have a London set you know kablooey moment and in G.I. Joe Retaliation had the worst one of this where the whole thing at the end uh, is that a series of world leaders are, have access to this super nuke uh, which has to be disabled and just to get things started to show that they mean business they just let one off and throw it into London and they cut to London which just ripples like a broken or smashed up piano and then they the the response is with an Indian guy who goes oh <gasps> Oh no! The London guy isn't even cut to. But anyway, it's just another example of a glib, and the city goes. Um, yeah, I'm looking through some of some of the films that came out uh, last year. Django Unchained was that an interesting third act? It, did it go on too long? Some people thought it maybe went, went on too long. A touch, it maybe perhaps. ended and then ended again. Yeah, had a fourth act that one. <laughs> I thought. Did, yeah, I thought did, it did too. It, but yeah, up until that point, great. Um, Wolverine was an interesting one. We t- talked about that recently. Obviously, I thought the third act was yeah. spectacularly jarring, and it was heading in a whole different direction and you suspected that the film the first two thirds of the film would have been honoured better by a more low key uh, denouement than what it got which felt like something that had crash landed from from another film or, it yeah. felt a little bit like they'd lost the last part of the script and a 13 year old boy had finished it with a crayon which is what I was going to go on to say which is that it feels like this is Hollywood imposing an ideal that it thinks cinema goes want on its third acts, which is an X scale of destruction and carnage and CGI and mayhem. I would have been perfectly happy had the the Wolverine ended as the uh, Claremont Miller comic mm. book does with a one on one fight between Shingen and um, mm. uh, and what's his name, the Wolverine. Yeah, no, that's um, absolutely that's really well played as well because they don't even fight with real swords, do they? In the comic, mm. they fight with Bokken, the wooden practice yeah. swords and. It's uh, yeah. With not every, but many blockbusters, some of the blockbusters that we're seeing, I think I feel at least that Watchmen becomes a more interesting and rich film in terms of some of the things that it says. Admittedly, most of which come from the graphic novel rather than the film itself. But that had an interesting ending. I thought, even though they changed it slightly from the giant killer squid. I was never against changing the squid. I no, think it worked better the I, way they changed. I it. I think so too. But it had a nice. It had a, amidst all the massive scale, it had a an atmosphere atmospheric tone to it which I really liked and I think more films could yeah. could stand to borrow from 
It's interesting. I mean, for example, um, uh, the, the question's about action movies. So I don't know if I throw The World's End there. I think The World's End has a great... I think The World's End builds and builds as it, good, as it mm. get, goes on and gets better as it goes on, which is which is uh, a rarity these days. Um, I'm going to throw Pixar's up into the mix for discussion because I think that's Pixar's masterpiece, but most people will say that the, the first act is the best act, or at least that has packs the most emotional punch. But I love the stuff at the end with, you know, when Carl finds the scrapbook and whatnot. That's the real cut punch for me. I'm a sucker for talking dogs, so I'm with you there. Yeah. At Henrik Brianes asks, and apologies if I mispronounced your name, since we're over halfway through the year, tell us what your favourite movies of the year are so far. Please. Well, you guys were at Cannes, so you must have seen some things that no one else here has seen. Yeah, and we also went to Comic-Con, and uh, Chris got to see The Escape Plan. Cut that I out. am embargoed on Escape Plan. I cannot tell you whether it's on my favourite films of the year list or not until October. So yeah, we were at Cannes and we got to see, I mean, what I got to see was, was less than what Chris got to see, but I got to see Nebraska um, and Only God Forgives, which we'll be discussing later, and Inside Lewin Davis, all films that are certainly of note, um, but they're out for us, UK people, uh, next year. Uh, not Only God Forgives, Nebraska and uh, Inside Lewin Davis, that is. Uh, as concerns the movies I've enjoyed most so far this year, my favourite ones, I put in Iron Man 3, I absolutely love that, I can't wait to get that on Blu-ray. And uh, I really enjoyed Francis R that came out last week. So here's to that. Still in cinemas, so go get some. Uh, Mud. I uh, I really enjoyed Django as well, for what it's worth. Oh, Django was this year. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, for us UK guys again. Yeah. I'm I'm struggling a bit with this one, to be honest. I mean, the films are really, really uh, loved uh, and uh, admired. Uh, Iron Man 3, The World's End. Uh, Alan Partridge is coming up. But I think it's really, really funny. Um but yeah I think this has been a really poor year I'll be honest with you I'm really struggling if you asked me to put a top 10 of the year together now there'd be a bunch of three star films in there Phil? I think yeah I agree I think this has been possibly one of the worst years ever for films we were just doing this thing where if you type in films and a date and a year on Google it brings up um, posters of the films around that year as you'd expect and just do it for any year and there's already there's films that you're like oh yeah there's that one oh those so many good films I just I, this year I'm struggling that's not to say there hasn't been lots of films that I've really enjoyed but yeah. I'm struggling to think of what films from this year I'm going to see again in 10 years um, to be honest but that said I really enjoyed Mud as well Francis Ha you mentioned I really liked um, Blackfish the documentary three, was really good but I have seen I don't think it's out yet Muscle Shoals a documentary about the Alabama uh, recording studio that's terrific again it's not out yet Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty that's probably my favourite film of the year played in Cannes Stoker I liked Zero Duck 30 I really liked Django The Impossible Lincoln Behind the Candelabra Steven Soderbergh's Swan Song was really enjoyable Stoker Zero Duck 30 Lincoln I liked so you've listed basically every film that's come out this year well, yeah, I think the, no, the, the point is that I'm, uh, for example, I'm on Box Office Mojo at the moment, going through the the year uh, year's box office so far, trying to find films that I really, really liked. I mean, uh, All Is Lost, the Robert Redford film with played a can, is fantastic, and I, I think it's coming out here in November. So do check that one out when it when it comes out. I really liked Stoker, but the fact is, when you ask me on Trance, I've just seen Danny Boyle's Trance, I really like that as well. But the fact that nothing really leaps into my head. Uh, when you ask me that question, I think is indicative of how bad a year it's been. And uh, for example, last year, by this point, I'd seen the raid, I'd seen the Avengers, I was done. <laughs> you know, there, was, there were two great films already by that point. Uh, and I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I hate to be a twat, but I'm not going to let that stop me. Uh, the best film I've seen this year is The Last of Us on PlayStation Three. Hate to say it, but it's true. Better than any film I have seen in the cinema or on. 
Blu ray this year. I, I hate to agree with you, James. You know, I'm loath to it, but I couldn't agree with you more. It's an emotional nightmare. I mean, it's brilliant. It's really very, very good. And I haven't been more affected by a piece of artwork in a long, long time. No, neither had I. I, no, mean, I, I I've yeah. talked about it more than anything else. <clears throat> I've, 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 uh, we've just banged on about it endlessly in the office. It's, um, in fact, I was listening to an interview with one of the game creators on the way into work this morning. Um, it, it, playing that game makes you lament that there is no film quite like that that's come out recently. I agree. I mean, I, you know, when I put The Last of Us into my PlayStation 3, uh, the first five minutes is just astonishing. Um, okay, so that is it for your questions. Um, I think the message to movie makers is we've got four months left of the year. Go for it. <laughs> Hopefully it's behind the Oscar season some of the real builders will come out. I'm really looking forward, for example, to Captain Phillips, Paul Greengrass's film, so and saving Mr. Banks and, and other movies that don't have Tom Hanks in them. So I, that, think that we, be. I think we can all agree twenty thirteen is about Riddick. I think we I think uh, yes, that's that's agree with that. If it'll keep you quiet, that's agree with that. Uh, okay, if you want to send in questions to us, uh, you know the drill by now, hopefully. Uh, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine, use the hashtag Empire Podcast, otherwise we won't see it. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com Okay, our first interview is coming up now Logan Lerman is one of the fastest rising stars in the business he's probably best known for his blockbusters like Percy Jackson and the Lightning Seeds and the Three Musketeers but he's shown impressive acting chops yes, Lightning Seeds, I know Uh, he's shown impressive acting chops in the likes of 310 to Yuma and the perks of being a wallflower he's back next week by contractual demand in the sequel Percy Jackson The Sea of Monsters and Helen and Phil spoke to him about all manner of lovely things when he came to town recently. We are joined today by the star of Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters. Uh, it is Logan Lerman. Hello. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. You are back as Percy Jackson after, what, four years nearly? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We started, uh, we started this journey a little while ago. It's nice to be back, though. What can you tell the people who, haven't, who don't know much about it? Well, you know, uh, well, this film... Uh, you know, it takes place, I mean, it starts off and Percy's kind of, he's not the hero anymore. <laughs> he's um, There's he's, a new flavor of the month, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of been like one-upped by someone else. He's kind of down on himself. But the camp um, has been threatened. Uh, their their protective barrier has been poisoned and because uh, it's like a living thing, breathing thing. And so the uh, the guys go on a journey to the Sea of Monsters to uh, to find the mythical fleece, the golden fleece, to right. to basically you know save their camp and save everybody. And uh, along the way, they're uh, having to battle some pretty uh, bad beasts. And it's kind of like a, it's a fun adventure, you know. You had like a week though, didn't you? You were on like a smaller indie movie. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then they were right now, Percy Jackson, go. You got yeah. a week to yeah. prepare for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much, I was shooting something else. And they're like, all right, you know, it's going, and it's going at this time, and. We didn't have any prep, really, but, um, you know, we, we, we prepped so much on the first one that it was like just getting back into the old shoes. Mm. and it, it seemed quite funny. I have to say as well, we, we noticed uh, this morning they appear to have Wi-Fi in Camp Half. Yeah, how do they oh, yeah. Wi-Fi? <laughs> I, I'm, I've asked the same question, but I guess they're just in a good spot. You know, they're in a good zone. They're able to pick up some good service on their, on their phones and things. The magic of Verizon. Yeah, yeah, right? I guess. They're yes, I don't know other providers I said, are available. I said, how have they got Wi-Fi? They're looking at all this mythology on the iPad, which is great. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's like, they're near Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the movie. Yeah, no, right? Well, they're, they're near New York. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's just upstate New York. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and how about the, the new cast members? Like Stanley Tucci was having a ball yeah, in yeah. the bit that we saw. Yeah, no, he's great. He's yeah. great. Yeah, we, we had some fun, you know, new guys come in and uh, Stanley would come 
come in. He came in for like a week, and we'd have like a blast working with him, and then like all the other guys. Um, it was mainly just like a big reunion for us <laughs> because like I haven't seen some of the guys in like a few years, and um, some of them I kept in touch with, and they were mm-hmm. close friends of mine. But it was fun just to get back into the to the old groove of things and. Yeah. Yeah, you know, play around. Um, I want to ask you as well about the perks of being a wallflower because we didn't have, I don't think you came into London for that or at least we didn't talk to you if you did. No, no. Um, And it's one of those films that it kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people. I don't think people knew, I I think a lot of people hadn't read the book Mm -hmm. um, and I think they now have maybe and uh, and they didn't really sort of see it coming and then it's just, it seems to be just steadily building. All all you keep hearing about it is kind of better and better word of mouth. It's it's like a cult film, really, which is good because it's kind of a, in some ways, about cult films as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It was, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm always surprised when people see, you know, movies that I'm in and stuff like that. <laughs> but that one, uh, it seems like a lot of people have have, have kind of caught on after it came out. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm just really proud of it. It's it's yeah. a it's a you know a lucky film to find. Yeah. I, I, especially at that period of time, you know, a few years ago. And I mean, I mean, as I get older, it's it's easier to find good roles and stuff like that. But when you're that age, it's kind of hard to find good material. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just one of those good, good was, scripts and good terrific, books. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific yeah. role as well. But I mean, because you, you're working with the director also wrote the book, mm-hmm. and that strikes me as as something that could have been a nightmare. And I, I'm guessing wasn't judging by the film finished. It's product, usually but, like a red flag. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> usually just like eh, I don't know about this. But he he's a filmmaker. Yeah. He's a you know he he's he's a filmmaker at heart and he's done a lot of work not a lot of directing before this film but he was producing and writing you know movies and he's you know he he knows what he's doing and he's very 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 good at what he does yeah uh, Stephen Shpasky yeah we and mention his name yeah <laughs> I just thought I'd throw it out there and um, no yeah but you know but he's great he's great and uh, I I had a lot of confidence in him mm-hmm. I mean you know in working with him because he's he's just the most one of the most decisive. Uh, filmmakers, I know he just he he has a vision, you know, yeah. a really distinct vision, and it's it's funny because a lot of people that I've worked with like go in and they're just like they just cover their, you know, their I, mean, I guess I guess the angles that they need and they don't really know what they're with what they want until mm-hmm. post, and they kind of uh, just like a puzzle they kind of like piece it together and, and figure out what it is later on. Yeah, but he knew mm-hmm. what he wanted ten years ago, Steve, <laughs> you know, when he wrote the book and yeah. everything. Even longer than that, actually. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. He's a cool, cool filmmaker. Cool, really cool filmmaker to work with. And he's going to do a lot of films like that now. Yeah, I think he's he's on that process of writing the book and and doing uh, another film after that too. Yeah. Have you spoken to him about that? Oh yeah, the yeah. next really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what he's up to right now, but I'm not going to give it away. Or Darn anything. it! <laughs> he's he's writing a really cool book, but it's different. It's different. Does it involve you dancing in suspenders at any point? Yes. That's how did you? How could someone guess that? Well, That's that would suck. Well, you laughed, but you did have you had a Logan Lerman suspender period because it's not the first time you've done it. Mm-hmm. There was the scene, obviously, in, in Meet in Meet Bill. Oh yeah, yeah. Haunted me for life. Say, you look like you're having fun. In fairness, there's not a, yeah. there's not like a, a, a sort of a, a whiff of shame or embarrassment about that at all. Oh, and why should that be? Oh yeah, what's wrong not? with that? I mean, well, I mean, it's harder to deal with when you're like fifteen or fourteen when you're doing it. You know, when, you're, when when you're older and you're looking back, you're like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> just when you're it, doing it, it's like the most humiliating thing ever <laughs> in front of like who was that? It was just Galva. Just Galva, yeah. Fuck. 
Oh, sorry. No, that's I didn't fine. mean to no, curse sorry. like that. We're it's okay. this one. It's okay. okay. <laughs> you were, hang on, you were 14 or 15 dancing in suspenders yeah. in front of Jessica Alba. I don't even think they were suspenders. I think it was in lady uh, in lingerie. I was just in like women's under, underwear or something. Like I don't know. Really I, would, I would have thought that the Jessica Alba thing would kind of outweigh this, the, the lingerie in terms of, you know, getting you cred with your friends. But were they like, Logan, good news, you're in a scene involves Jess Grabber and some ladies' underwear. Yeah. like, yes, okay. It's great on paper. (laughs) Until you have to do it. No, it's it's always like, you know, one of those things, like, I wish I knew what I know now back then. You know, it would have been much, much easier and less uh, self-conscious about it. Oh. Yeah. How is is Fury going to work? Because people, we watched... um, End of Watch. Yeah. David Ayer is, is in a groove at the moment. That yeah. was a phenomenal piece of work and, and a great kind of the, the chemistry between the Jake Gyllenhaal and the Michael Pena character. Yeah, and yeah. I assume that there's going to be a lot of that in that tank. With, a lot of that, yeah. You've got Shia LaBeouf yeah. in your crew, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. and who, who else? Michael Pena and John Bernthal. Wow. Yeah. When are you going to start the bonding process or have you started? We've already started. I mean, that, that that's, uh, you know, the thing about working with David Ayer, uh, the filmmaker, is that he is, um, you know, he's all about the prep and, and, and making sure that we're prepping uh, way in advance, more so than any other film that I've worked on. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of cool. So we're just starting our uh, our training and everything right now. We don't shoot for a while. Wow. Because Jake, Gyllenhaal was telling us about how he went out with the LAPD for yeah. a number of days and, mm-hmm. and saw some, you know, mm-hmm. it's a little difficult for you in a Sherman tank, I guess, to, you can't just kind of drive that around yeah. Europe. No, uh, we've already visited <laughs> the you? tank and we've, 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 you know, started it and kind uh-huh. of uh, figuring out how to use it and, and see what our positions are and everything. And um, I guess, uh, you know, we're pretty early on in the process right now of starting the, the prep on that film. But uh, it's one I'm really excited about. Really excited about. Wow. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy movie. It's going to be kind of claustrophobic, huh? Very. Are Tanks you? are tight. They're yeah. really tight spaces. Yeah, yeah. And you got to get the camera in there as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how they're going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that there will be the, the camera trick of probably splitting it in half. Yeah. Right. Is it going to be mostly like the Lebanon, the the, the uh, Israeli film set within the tanks? Is it going to be that kind of approach where it's mostly from within the tank looking out? Or I am so curious. I really have no <laughs> idea yet. Um, but you know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty claustroph- yeah, claustrophobic. You know, of space, and it kind of feels um, like almost you know similar to like a uh, submarine movie or something like that. But it's not just inside the tank the whole yeah, time. Sure. You know, but most of the movie. Wow, cool. And, it's pretty crazy. And at the other end of the scale, Noah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Aronofsky, how was he? Awesome. Really, really great. I'm, I really enjoyed working with him. He's a filmmaker I've uh, you know been dying to work with, you know, one of my favorites. Yeah. And um, again, just a, a genius, really decisive yeah. guy, mm. knows what he wants, and that's always a, a good thing, you know. Yeah, it's a very, in, in some ways, counterintuitive idea for a film. I mean, Noah just seems like... Yeah. It's a bizarre thing to be filmed. I'm, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued to see it. Don't get me wrong, but it, you know, it, 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 it's going to to shock and surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, it's not your, it's not your family, you know, Disney version. <laughs> you know, um, it's pretty dark and uh, and apocalyptic. Wow! But, but it has a big message. Big message. It's pretty cool. And you play Ham, obviously Noah's son. Yeah, yeah. Who. In the Bible, there's some mm-hmm. mystery about his role. Mm-hmm. It's a curse placed on your character, isn't there? I, I guess so. Yes, involving some 
a night out after the Ark arrives at Mount Arafat. Mm-hmm. Ararat. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us any more? I, I, I don't want to give anything away <laughs> about what direction we go with, you know, in, in, in with this film, but it's definitely not something that people uh, would be expecting. All right. So, um, I mean, I'm curious. I'm curious to see how they're going to start laying it out. You know, the first thing that the studio is going to show and everything. And um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be epic, though. That's that's a big movie. All right. Well, Logan Lerman, thank you very, very much for coming in. Hey, thank and you. Percy Jackson is out on August 7th. August 7th. Check it out. Thanks, guys. Thank you, dude. OK, time for movie news now. What do you have, Russ? I've got one of those things. It's kind of news, kind of not news. But uh, the website for X-Men Days of Future Past has gone online it's one of those viral jobbies that's a kind of expanded universe type thing and it is the website for Trask Industries which is the uh, company set up by Bolivar Trask who's played by Peter Dinklage who you may or may not know from that Game of Thrones Peter Dinklage it's got loads of detail in there about what the Sentinels look like, the Mark 1s, uh, the Sentinels being the super robots that are designed specifically to take out mutants, detect them with the mutant detector device that they have. You can see that 360 degrees. It's, it's one of those websites that you can really dig into and play about with. It shows you, in case you're wondering how heavy one of these Sentinels are, it's £5,000. And you can see the inhibitor collars that they use. And it gives you a brief history of genetics in terms of Trask. So in 2020, there will be the Sentinel Mark X. He discovers hybrid genes in 2018. So it's that kind of level of detail. And I really enjoy that. Also, more importantly, Marvel.com have put up all the full episodes of the 1990s X-Men cartoon. Cyclops. I used to have that as my ringtone. True story. At university, uh, me and a friend of mine used to go out. He was on about, I think it was about 5.30 every day. We used to go out and we used to commandeer our halls of residence TV room. And everyone used to come in waiting to watch, I don't know, Neighbours, what home and we'd go, no, 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 X-Men. And we'd make them all sit and watch the animated series before they could watch whatever rubbish was on afterwards. I watched, before I went to bed, a couple for the past, like, four days. And it's surprisingly witty. It still stands up. I mean, some of the animation's a bit crummy, but gotta love it that's what hooked me onto X-Men that's what made me interested and I don't think you'd get the interest in X-Men that we've had obviously since the early 2000s if it weren't for that that's what seeded for many people the background knowledge of what an X-Man was I never liked Gambit's voice on that show it's quite sleazy it also annoyed me because he called Jubilee Petit and if you speak French you know it should be Petit (laughs) (laughs) ah pedants unite I thought the Sentinels looked a bit like the Iron Giant they do a bit. They look like big purple dildo. <laughs> wow, that's that's one way to take out the X Men. <laughs> <laughs> At least buy his dinner first. Oh, good god! And the wheels have come off. Ali, you had something else to tell us, didn't you? Uh, yeah. So that was genuinely. If you have any time in your life and you feel like it, go to Marvel.com and check out the full episodes of the 1990s X Men cartoons. They're about 13 seasons, so have fun. Uh, anyway, the other news in the world of comic books, uh, I've decided to be that person today, is that The Flash is coming back to the small screen. It was there in 1990 for one season, but it was beaten to death by uh, reports from the Gulf War, which kept overrunning when it was meant to go out. And also The Simpsons was very popular, and it cost a bundle. And it was rubbish. It was also terrible, yes, no, that's yes. right, no, it's terrible. No, no, I'm sorry, I have to take issue with this. This was, this was John Wesley Shipp, wasn't it, as The Flash, Dawson's dad? from Dawson's Creek really yeah true story uh, and he had that ridiculous red puffy muscle suit 
that he used to put on. It was bad, yes. Yeah. And it would have those awful gags where he'd be like, look, it's the Flash! And then he'd run off and then run past us the Flash and then run back again in his normal clothes. <laughs> oh, look, it was the Flash. It's also notable for featuring Mark Hamill as, let's just call a spade a spade, a Joker knockoff called the Trickster, who wore kind of like late 80s, early 90s, polka dot, super garish costume. Uh, he had a sidekick called Prank, and it was generally one of the most excruciating things in the world. It, it, better that than the cock knocker. Honestly, there are some amazing villains in the uh, Flash universe, including Captain Cold. Guess what he's a <laughs> knockoff of? <laughs> a freeze is coming. And then there's Mirror Master, who's essentially just a thug who has some technology that means he can create holograms. I cannot wait. Anyway, so he is coming back to TV. They're <laughs> going to see how they can sneak him in and connect him to uh, Warner Bros. Uh, semi-successful. I haven't watched it, but apparently some people do love it. Green Arrow uh, TV show. So it's going to be hopefully connected with that in preparation for a Justice League movie. Though they haven't decided whether this will actually feed into it directly. They're going to dip their toes in the water to see how it goes. What's cute about The Flash for me, and I'm not a DC nut by any means, is that for for me, he has the most real-life, real human name. So you've got Bruce Banner, you've got Peter Parker, and The Flash, who is Barry Allen. <laughs> That's an Alan Partridge name, if ever there were one, Don't isn't Don't laugh it? at Barry Allen. Barry Allen. That's a good name. Barry Allen could fix your fridge. He could. My story's about Beverly Hills Cop. We love Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop 2 is okay. Beverly Hills Cop 3 was a total cluster. Beverly Hills Cop 4 could be coming. They were talking about making it into a TV uh, TV series. The S.H.I.E.L.D. creator, Sean Ryan, was involved in that for a while. That kind of slightly fell over. The premise behind that would <laughs> fell over. be... What happened to your pilot? <laughs> it fell over. Sorry. It got a banana stuck in his tailpipe. Basically, the premise was going to be that Axel Foley was going to be a dad to the new prodigy cop played yes. by Brandon T. Jackson and Foley would be somehow in charge of the Detroit Police Department presumably because every other policeman there had died um, and that didn't happen but now there's talk substantiated by, by Ryan himself that Paramount are keen to make this into a movie again so it's another potential reboot stroke sequel stroke prequel stroke what they have a call interesting um, and it would presumably bring Eddie Murphy now 52 and his badge back together again for more Victor Maitland baiting he's her, dead her, yeah. I know he's dead but sim- okay Victor uh, Maitland alike baiting his, his son Jason Maitland Jason Maitland yeah I'm gonna start a petition now that Paul Reiser's Jeffrey come back <laughs> For the next instalment, okay. I'm sure Paul Riser was crack on in a second. <laughs> Maybe Herp Herpes Simplex Ten runs in the family, and there's a he needs to track him down to tell him that he's got this condition. That could, that could I don't know. I'm just brainstorming. The third act be too over the top, though, please. It's going to be scripted by the two men who are behind who are behind Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot. Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec. Apologies for pronunciation. So mm, you know. Coming forces, I guess, in Hollywood. That Both sentence producers. started so promisingly. Which bit? The Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol bit. Yeah, and it's funny that, isn't it? Ninja Turtles bit. Because that was really good. Mm. But, but you can see there's a sort of a logical, a logical kind of progression there for someone in Hollywood saying, well, they've done those two sort of reboots. They could probably do this one. Yeah, and I'd like to see... The, I'd, obviously, I would like to see the Beverly Hills Cop uh, TV show pilot. I heard that um, one of the reasons they, they didn't go ahead with it is because Murphy dominated or Murphy's character was so effervescent in comparison to Branton D. Jackson's character that he just overshadowed the entire show. 
and since he wouldn't be coming back only for guest appearances every now and again they kind of thought well what's the point really people want to see Eddie Murphy not Branton T. Jackson but no disrespect to Branton T. Jackson but there you go so I'd like to see uh, you know Axel Foley come back and wash away the bad taste of Beverly Hills Cop 3 the news that I have is news that actually you'd be better off saying is that uh, it has been announced by Kathleen Kennedy that uh, John Williams will surprise surprise be scoring the next three Star Wars films which I think for a lot of people would be a bit of a relief no, no disrespect to Michael Giacchino, but he does all of J.J. Abrams stuff, and I think a lot of people wondered whether Giacchino would end up doing the score for episode seven. Uh, and it wouldn't shock me if maybe we end up with a Harry Potter-type situation where episode seven is John Williams, and then episode eight has maybe a bit of a shared thing, and then maybe episode nine is, you know? Maybe. Um, who knows? It but nevertheless, it's, it's gratifying. Obviously, much depends on John Williams' ongoing health well, he's 81 years old he is Chris you were there weren't you? you were at Celebration Europe uh, what did you see apart from lots of people dressed as Ewoks and Jawas I was there I was there last week and it was interesting uh, especially coming a week after Comic Con not quite on the same scale but you know pretty big and I think they might be doing these Star Wars celebrations every year this is only the ninth since 1999 there's been six in the States two in Europe and one in Japan uh, and this was you know, this, it was it was fun and it was interesting being in the room we were hoping uh, for maybe some episode 7 news like maybe confirmation of a title or you know confirmation of Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher were there but they were very much sipped up they weren't allowed to say anything about episode 7 um, which Kathleen Kennedy interestingly calls Ep 7 I'll leave it to you to decide how interesting that is <laughs> but that's it certainly was the, the second biggest news to come out of the room that week. Um, but then you know, she, she she appeared on, on stage last uh, last Saturday for a, an hour-long panel with Warwick Davis, who was a fantastic host all the way through. And um, she said a couple of interesting things. She said that, you know, there was going to be a lot of location work on episode seven. It wouldn't all be just green screen. It wouldn't all be on a soundstage in, in London. Obviously, it's going to be the majority will be shot here, uh, which is great. Uh, but there will there will be locations, so they, you know, hopefully they'll be going to you know I don't know Tunisia for Tatooine if Tatooine plays a part, which I, I, you'd hope it would do. Um, and they'll be they'll be scouting around the world, and that they'll be using the whole toolbox. So they, they will be using puppeteers, and they will be using uh, real quote unquote droids, and uh, and and bringing a level of physicality and reality to it that that so it won't all be CG, which is great. Uh, also, that there'll be some humour in it. That George has uh, dictated that he wants there to be an element of humour in it. Mark Hamill expre- uh, interpreted that as he wanted Steve Carell, Tina Fey and Sarah Silverman to be in the cast. He wants people, he wanted actors who'll make him smile. And in terms of his participation, Carrie Fisher didn't say a single thing, but he said, you know, if it does happen, I'd like Luke to be age-appropriate. I wouldn't like to be playing like a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old. Uh, you know, I think you can see that, you know, whack a beard on him, make his hair... In, you know a, a different style, and you can you can get away with that. He could he could definitely be the Obi Wan in this episode. But yeah, the big the big the big news was uh, John Williams coming back to score uh, the the, uh, the next three episodes and Star Wars Rebels, of course. Star Wars Rebels, yeah, which is which is very interesting. Uh, this is the the animated series that will replace the Clone Wars. Uh, the Clone Wars ran for five seasons and then was. Um, uh, shall we say Order 66 uh, yeah. sadly um, but the Rebels um, Star Wars Rebels uh, is from the same creator Dave Filoni who's a guy who absolutely knows the Star Wars inside and out and this will bridge the gap between episodes 3 and 4 he didn't say when it would take place but the fact that he indicated that uh, some characters from Clone Wars would be involved including Ahsoka Tano his um, big creation for the Clone Wars Anakin's Padawan uh, it, it indicates that it won't be too far 
after episode three. And it'll it'll involve a group of rebels on the run in a new ship, a new ship to the Star Wars universe called the Ghost, which is a cross between the Millennium Falcon and a B-17 bomber, which apparently he's, Dave Filoni is a huge fan of. And uh, that actually caused a, a huge stir at the weekend. There was no footage because they're still very, very much in the development stages, but uh, he unveiled a logo. Uh, which I have a t-shirt of already and uh, he, uh, he unveiled uh, some great concept art it's based on Ralph McQuarrie's um, concept art unused concept art for the original uh, trilogy and uh, some of it looks absolutely amazing so looking forward to that one and I'd hope that it goes down the same route as The Clone Wars um, and ultimately brings back voice actors uh, those are obviously still around uh, what I loved about you know, The Clone Wars is that it did bring back you know, I love that Liam Neeson came back and 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 revoiced Qui Gon Jinn for a couple of episodes, which is great. Um, obviously, the likes of Hugh McGregor are too busy to voice uh, Obi Wan and whatnot, but it would be it would be fun to uh, to have some people coming back. It'd be great. I'm really interested about that because that's the time period I was most interested in. When someone first told me about Clone Wars uh, as a concept, I thought that's great because it'll bridge this gap. Mm. When of course I was being dumb, and it was obviously between two and three. So anyway, here's to that, and I hope it's as successful and doesn't get so unceremoniously cancelled. Yes, let's hope, let's hope it doesn't. But uh, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, okay, so uh, what to say about our second guest this week? It's the second time he's been in the podcast this year, and with the Stephen Frears film Philomena still to come, he might yet make it a hat-trick. He's one of the funniest men in Britain, an actor and writer of some repute and astonishing variety, yet for all that variety, his career has been dominated by one character in particular, Alan Gordon Partridge. Yes, it's Steve Coogan. Yes, at long last, Alan Partridge is coming to the big screen. And yes, Nick Descendian and I went to talk to Steve about all things Alan. Get out your big plate, load it with chat, for the all-you-can-chat buffet is about to open. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined by uh, Steve Coogan, co-writer and star of Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Uh, Steve, we loved the movie, and when we saw it at the screening, we were introduced to Henry Normal. He had a lady with him who claim he claims was the inspiration for Lynn. Is this true? Uh, former PA. Oh, Lindsay. Uh, y- y- well, Lindsay used to be my PA. Okay. So I took her, as a nod to Lindsay, I, I called Lindsay Lynn. But she's, but her, she herself, her character is nothing like Lynn's at all. <laughs> she's, uh, she's the, I mean, she's a very interesting character, Lindsay, but, uh, but she's, she's, she's the antithesis of Lynn. You know, Lynn's, Lynn's a shrinking violet, mm. uh, to be kind. Um, <laughs> Lin, Lindsay's, Lindsay's not a shrinking violet, so uh, they're very different. But, but, the, but the, the name is a nod to her. I'm frightened to ask, is there an inspiration for Michael? No, there's not. We just wanted to have a character who was someone who was clearly more inadequate than Alan. That, I mean, Alan would latch onto to make himself feel better because clearly in the Alan-Michael relationship, Alan is the, soup, is the, is the alpha male you know, <laughs> of those two. So, so um, we knew when we first came up with the TV series that it would be good for Alan to have a, a friend and probably the only f- real friend he could get would be someone who would be sort of if you like stupid enough to look up, up to him. <laughs> when you were making uh, Mid-Morning Matters and uh, Welcome to the Places of My Life, did you miss Michael and Lynn in a way? Is that why they were back for the movie or was it just difficult to, to fit them into those formats? Well, it was just, it was difficult to put them in those formats. I mean, we, because if he's in his radio booth broadcasting, they're not going to be there. I think we did have one phone call with Lynn Mm-hmm. In one episode of Big Morning Masters, where you don't hear on the other end, which is just for any anoraks out there. So I suppose <laughs> she did make us by osmosis an appearance. And then, of course, when you do documentaries, there's no reason why Michael would be in the documentary. We felt it might be too self-indulgent so it, to sort of jemmy them in. Mm. Uh, but whereas you're doing a film, which is a traditional narrative, and in that way similar to Iron Man and Partridge, it means that you can 
legitimately bring them in. And of course, we wanted to because everyone loves Lynn and everyone loves Michael, and we and so we never didn't consider having them in the film. But was there ever? Uh, did you ever consider putting Glenn Ponder in the film in some way? Maybe you could write the jingles. No, no, it's weird. I think we did consider possibly. We did consider possibly bumping into him in one in the last episode of the TV series. But I think we did talk about Alan bumping into Glenn Ponder or meeting him, and 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 Glenn Ponder having f- f- been uh, become sort of more gay <laughs> more outwardly gay I don't know, we, did, we never sort of went that we never went down that road but we we toyed we toyed with it um and it's odd because i know steve brown who you know plays len ponder and is a you know he, he he's written, written lots of musicals he's the person behind that the act, ru- rumor that's so he you know he, he discovered her and he he made her successful and so he's mm. steve sort of I, I know him as steve really and it's sort of almost <laughs> i forget that he played len ponder you know because i enjoyed that the book kind of kept the mythology going and I believe it's Alan goes to Nando's with Glenn. Is that right? That they have uh, a little bit of a partnership. It's enhanced my enjoyment of Nando's quite considerably. <laughs> oh, that's to, yes, he did go to Nando's. That's right. Yes, he did. Yes, yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. We, we, we you know, we took all the people who existed in his life or had appeared in his life before we wrote the autobiography to make it consistent. We had an archivist um, who went through everything to make sure that any references we made were consistent with the conceit or lie. The trouble is, if you, if you, it's like, you know, if you tell a casual lie, you might have to remember that lie at some point in the future. <laughs> well, imagine that when you're going to party, you spent years lying, and then someone says, okay, I'm going to ask you about every lie you've ever told, and then you have to write a biography. That, that's, that's, it becomes quite a mammoth task. Um, so, so that was quite. Hard. So, is the Allen archivist now in an asylum somewhere? Having gone <laughs> he's mad, actually doing the uh, EPK. He's wandering around with the camera here, um, um, doing sort of covering this and that and everything we're doing. So, he's still in the land of living. Yeah. Are you an uh, an Alan Anorak, Steve, or do, do you get really, stumped no, by fans no. constantly? I mean, no, I'm not. I mean, I don't. People come up to me and quote things from. I haven't heard the radio series for 15 years. Mm. I'm not listening to it for 15 years. I mean, I might have listened to it. By accident on the radio, but I haven't listened to it for at least fifteen years. I, mean, I have no idea what's on it. I can't remember things. People come up to me and go, "Hey, Alan, and say something," and I don't know what they're talking about. And then they go, "You know," in that episode, I go, "Wow," and then I go, "I have a vague inkling of what it is from the twenty years ago," and I go, "Oh, oh yeah," like it's an old memory. But I don't. No, I don't dwell on that. And I don't go over it. And in actual fact, you know, I'm not even that that. Uh, even though I like doing comedy, it's like a busman's holiday for me. I mean, I, before I got into comedy, I liked comedy. Mm. And I know Monty Python sketches off bat, really know lots of that stuff in detail. I used to love watching comedy on TV and, and uh, had an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of it. Uh, but when I started getting into it, you sort of become, because you start to know the mystery is no more. Mm you become less interested in it. So I don't watch comedy. I'm not really that interested in other people's comedy. Um, I watch documentaries and I, 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 I like films and I, I like other forms of entertainment. I don't really... Um, but if you asked me to quote Monty Python, I'd be far more adept at that than I could have <laughs> quoted my own stuff, which is odd. But then I do meet fans and I, they do know my stuff off-pat and I go, oh, wow. And I think, oh, yeah, well, I was like that about stuff before. Yeah. If I was obsessed with my own material, it wouldn't be very healthy. I talked to you a couple of times during production. It seemed very clear you it was a difficult task making this yeah. film. Oh, it was, yeah. And at one point you had a cut which was two hours and 45 minutes long? Yeah, but that's pretty normal. I mean, I did 24-hour party people. We had a six-hour cut. You know, you, <laughs> you, 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 if you shoot a lot of stuff 
and it's not a very disciplined, tight script, you end up with a very long assembly. Um, so I've had longer assemblies, but that, but that, that was, but that was good. That that was healthy. It's like, oh, great, um, because that means you could start the process of mm. cutting, and cutting is good. Cutting is healthy. Trimming is healthy because you're trimming the fat constantly. So what you end up with at the end is hopefully 90 minutes of lean cuisine. Is that the magic number? 90 minutes. I think comedy. it is a magic number, certainly for a comedy. I know other comedies have been longer, and but I don't think they, they should be longer. You know, I mean, I saw Bridesmaids, and I thought it was a very funny film, but I did think it was too long. You know, mm. I, th- I thought they could have taken stuff out of it, and it wouldn't have suffered. Um, so, so yeah. Well, the old saying, obviously, is uh, you, you have to kill your babies. Were there any yes. babies that you really regretted losing when you were trimming away? Uh, yeah, I can't remember anything specific, because they're gone now. But, I, but yeah, there's always lines I was like oh do we have to lose that I really enjoy that scene I really enjoy that line and and uh but there'll be that end up on DVD I mean mm. but yes there were uh, but but then I actually quite enjoy the sort of uh the massacre that sometimes happens when you when you have to cut things that you really are attached to and love because it means that you, you what you're left with is is really solid and that's 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 important um, so, so and if, if you're if you're not having to make difficult decisions, then you're in a bad situation. Yeah. Because if you're making cuts that are very easy to make, you're going to end up you, 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 the, with the stuff that's in there just to keep it at a certain length, and that's a really bad situation. You want to be making bad, deci- deci- difficult decisions that are painful. Have you seen this uh, with an audience yet? Yeah. And what what gets the biggest laugh? I can't remember. My mind's gone blank. The Rochford, uh, it's not a spoiler, I don't think, to say that it yeah. opens with a single yeah. take of you or Alan um, singing along to Rochford Cuddly Toy, yeah. which yeah. goes on and on, yeah. and it becomes funny, and then it gets funnier. Yeah, it, it says, well, I mean, uh, it, it, it's... Um, excuse me, I'm pour a glass of water myself. I don't want to be able to talk anymore. Um, <laughs> no one's urinating. That's okay, yeah. If your urine sounds like you're in trouble. <laughs> um... No, you have to. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean that, that that the opening sequence was one of the things where I think, wait, that's an experiment. You shoot it and you think, I think this might be funny. Mm-hmm. It might not. It might be profoundly unfunny. But I think what came up at the end, it, it, really people really like it, and it sort of. I thought this. I think this will be funny. But I, as you're going along, miming to the song, you have to kind of keep ramping up your performance so that it, <laughs> so that you, it doesn't just become repetitive. So you have mm-hmm. to make it get more and more into it. And I thought I'd have to do that and grade it so that by the end I'm really sort of into it. It's kind of a measured thing, but it's sort of intuitive. How many takes did you do of that one? I did uh, six or seven takes. We were just driving along. I was literally driving the car. I wasn't, I was not yeah. on a low loader. I'm actually driving the car at the time. Right. Um, and there's a guy with the camera saying, okay, I'm just going to keep the camera rolling. I had control of the tape. Kept rewinding it, doing it again, doing it again, over and over and over again. I do one more take. I got that bit wrong. One of the, and in the end, I said, I think we've got it. I think we've got it. And um, it, I think it paid off because I, I, I couldn't tell whether it was funny or not. And then people came back saying it's great. I love that there would be lots of motorists who were just driving along and they look over <laughs> and Alan Partridge is <laughs> in the car next to them <laughs> singing along. Yeah, yeah. Because originally, wasn't there going to be a, a Bond-style opening yes, sequence? Yes, there was. Yes, yeah. there was. Well, that's, that, again, that's something that in the writing was we thought, you know, when we shot that, we just said, that's clearly going to be the opening title sequence because it just seems <laughs> so strong. So let's not bother... Shooting this pretend Bond 
uh, sequence. Although it would have been funny. We might use that for the next... If we do another one, we'll use the Bond sequence mm. as a, a parody of a Bond sequence. There's a reference to Jason Statham in the film. <laughs> have you met him? Is he an Alan Partridge yes, fan? Yes, I met him. I met him. Yeah, he's a fan, yeah. I didn't ask his permission to do that, so I don't know what he'll think. Because um, <laughs> I guess you use a lot of real people in the, in the Partridge universe, and not all of them, I guess, have met you or... Yes, I know there's some people we refer to who haven't met me and people who have met me. Some people have met me, some people haven't met me. Because yeah. Bill Audie obviously was delighted. We spoke to him for our article and he was very happy about it. Uh, Gary yeah. Newman was very happy about it. Yeah, yeah, well, Gary, well I use, you know, he uses music and, um, uh, you know, I love Gary Newman's music and I also like Bill Audie and, and, and you know, also quite like Norwich. Uh, being, being referenced uh, doesn't, isn't uh, in a comedy. Uh, isn't necessarily a negative uh, at all, you know? and same way that using uh, Norwich as a, mm. as a as a sort of uh, as a city is no reflection on Norwich; it's just sort of a random choice in some ways. Uh, so it's it's um, and also some of the things that Alan likes are things that I genuinely like. It's not like I'm taking the piss out of them. So some of Alan's musical tastes are my musical tastes. Is there a, ever a, a blurring point? Do you ever sometimes say something, uh, Steve, and think, oh, hang on, that's maybe a bit too Alan? Or? Yeah, definitely. When I first started out, I'd say stuff as me, and the writers would say, oh, let's just write that down as Alan. And I'd go, <laughs> really? I was being serious. Um, and then, that, but then, But then you get beyond that, and you start to realize, okay, well, I might say this about this. And that's sort of, you know that when you say something, it sounds pretentious or stupid. Yeah. Um, but you use it anyway. You, 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 don't, you become less self-conscious about using things that you say. It's okay to regard aspects of your own character as slightly stupid. It doesn't mean you're weak. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually a good way. It actually empowers you because you think, well, I'm, I'm using this to be creative, so it doesn't matter. You've been playing Alan now for about 20 years, so has the way you've played him changed? Huh? Yes, it has, yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, the character's changed. It's changed for two reasons. Uh, one, basically, I, I, I want to develop the character and make the character more like me the character's become more like me mm. um, I haven't become more like Alan Alan's become more like me because I put more and more myself into the character because it's a way of just getting rid of stuff I go <laughs> oh, I've got an idea I'll throw that into the character and I go oh I've just had this idea I'll say this throw that to the so it ends up being a bit closer to me so that's one reason it, it, it's changed the other is you have to the character has to evolve in some way otherwise it just looks repetitive and tired to an audience um, I said there was two things, actually three. Um, the other thing is he has to reflect the world around him. He can't stay stuck in the early 90s as an old fogey wearing a blazer. And it's just too tired. He, he has to, um, you know, he, what once was sort of a quite right-wing little England, now, now he's become more slightly liberal, but still awkward. Um, but but uh, that's because he, you know, you, he, he, you look at David Cameron and he... he 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 likes uh, he approves of gay marriage and Tony Blair walks into Downing Street carrying an electric guitar. So Alan's trying to move with the times and be like a sort of reflect that kind of new, slightly relaxed consensus. So Alan's going to be aware of that. So he has to reflect that. The other uh, big British comedy of the summer is The World's End, and there's obviously yeah. a connection in that Simon Pegg is cameoed in I'm Alan Partridge. He has, yeah, You've yeah. Cameoed and toured with me years ago when we when we went on my live tour. He was sort of he was in the show. How did that come about? You, were- I saw him on a TV show, and I thought he was very good. And I asked him to come along and support me on tour. And he, after, and that first of all, I asked him to be in an episode of Alan Partridge, and he was great as a sort of corporate video director, and. Uh, he was, he was great, and then I became friends with him, and then he, he uh, came on tour with me, um, and I knew he'd be able to you know, do that really well. 
Um, and that's where he and I got Julia Davis on the same tour. And oh, yeah. Julia Davis and he were, weren't were that well known at the time. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they spent, you know, we spent a year touring together. And then Julia went off and uh, did a lot of stuff for us. And Simon went off and did Space. And that grew into, you know, uh, Shaun of the Dead and uh, Hot Fuzz, which I played a cameo in. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, and the, the world's end. So... It, and it's fantastic what he's done. He's he's a genuinely talented guy, uh, Simon Pegg. Very very um, smart, nuanced, great judgment, um, and he learns it all from me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, you obviously writing now with uh, Armando in this movie and the Gibbons brothers as well, but you are the arbiter of Alan, I guess, ultimately. Uh, so are you involved in things like the jingles and the song selection for the movie as well? Um, I basically directed all the jingles because my, my brother recorded them. My brother was in this, this rock band years ago called the Mock Turtles, and he, had a, and he runs a studio in North Manchester. So I assign all the jingles to him and I brief him on how to do them. And, and yes, I'm involved at every... I'm I'm the one common denominator of all that all the Alan incarnations over the years. The only person who's been there for every single one of them is me. And the writers have changed over the years. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, mid morning. I mean, there was the first series was written by just me and Patrick Marber. Mm-hmm. Second series, me, Patrick Marber, Armando Renucci. Uh, after that, me, Armando, Pete. Pete disappeared. Uh, mid morning matters. Me and the Gibbons with a bit of uh, uh, Armando. And the whole of the movie was shot by me and the Gibbons. Armando was in America for the entire shoot. Yeah. So Armando arrived during the editing process, which was very good because he was able to give an objective opinion of it and he had really valuable contributions on the whole editing process. Um, but, the, but the Gibbons were the engine of this film. Mm. Make no mistake about that. And had, and had I not discovered the Gibbons, the film would, wouldn't have happened. Simple as that. They were the tipping point that made the film possible. Hmm. Did Armando have any uh, suggestions in the editing stage that you had to go back and reshoot anything? Or was it uh, yes, he did. And we did. Yes, he did, and we did. Yeah. Armando, yes, he did. Armando was quite, uh, you know, quite a, a very, very uh, important uh, presence in the editing process, and shifted the emphasis of the film, and provoked us into making tough decisions. Hmm. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, and yes, we went to two days reshoot based on things. Well, there's certain scenes I did early on in the shoot I wasn't happy with. Uh, there's one day shoot we did, uh, second or third day, and it just hung over me during the entire shoot. I kept thinking, I'm not happy with that day. I don't, I don't buy it. When I watched it back, people go, no, it's okay. And I'm like, it's not okay. It's rubbish. I want to redo it. <laughs> and Armando was behind that. And he also suggested some other reshoots that helped. Yeah. So yeah, he, he was definitely a pivotal part of it. I love the idea of a museum where people could go. There'd be a Toblerone room, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think when you, I think that's that's what they call jumping the shark. <laughs> oh, <it's> like a <laughs> museum. Thank oh, no, you, Steve. No. Yeah, oh, thanks okay. very much, Steve Coogan. Cheers. Okay, Steve Coogan there, and uh, let's start our review section with Alpha Papa, Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, which opens on Wednesday, next Wednesday. Thoughts on this, guys? Um, Ali, you big Partridge fan? I am a big Partridge fan, and I'll just set this one up a little bit. There's not that much to say in terms of what goes on. Probably know the setup, but here it is. Colin Meany uh, plays a character who is another radio DJ, slightly long in the tooth, at North Norfolk Digital. Alan Partridge is still there with sidekick Simon. Things are ticking along semi-nicely when uh, North Norfolk Digital becomes shape, the way you want it to be, uh, a new station, and Gordale Media envelops North Norfolk Digital and tries to um, bring it into the 21st century. Alan is typically Alan-y about this. 
At first, he is happy to just deal with it if he's still got his job, but when he discovers he might not, things get a bit difficult, and eventually, as quickly becomes apparent, Colin Meany's character gets booted off Pat, poor Pat, uh, gets shown the door and the cardboard box, but he's not going to take things lying down. He promptly walks back in with a massive shotgun and holds almost the entirety of a Gordell Media hostage, and Alan is the only person he'll speak to. Hence, comedy. In short, this film is very, very funny, possibly one of the funniest films I've seen this year. If you were looking for something that's uh, incredibly cinematic, it's not that. Alan as a character is not a cinematic character. He is by his very nature a, you know, washing golf balls in your sink type guy, and you're not going to get massive helicopter explosions and, you know, Alan through and through, and fans will be pleased with how it keeps itself grounded and remains funny consistently for 90 minutes. It is a big screen release, obviously, so they they need to address that, and I think they do it in a really funny way. The the, the cinematic, the big helicopter shots of the Cromer coastline, and, and and it just it's funny. Everything is intrinsically funny about the idea that you know Norfolk is a, is a big screen property mm. all of a sudden, and I think it does deals with that quite nicely. Although you're right, it is a small scale, you know, in people in a room type of comedy, isn't it? There's action moments, but really it's just Alan going around in these life or death scenarios being Alan and it's really hilarious yeah it, it, it plays with action tropes as well I mean, it's a loop, there's a car chase but it's a low speed car chase there's a there's a shootout but it's with an air rifle uh, from a you know an arcade there's a a, a a hot love scene but it's in a disabled toilet there's you know, there's all yeah. there's all sense of I just love the way it tweaks and plays with stuff um, but the, the main thing about this movie is it's you know the, the debut of Alan Partridge on the big screen Alan Partridge is I know James isn't a huge fan but uh, uh, Alan Partridge is uh, one of the greatest TV characters this country's ever produced and I'd argue of all time he's absolutely just astonishing and he's across he's been he, he's, he's gone across so much uh, so many different iterations uh, over the years from you know fake sports reporter on the day to day and on the hour, you know, fake chat show host on, you know, knowing me, knowing you. He's been, you know, subject of a sitcom, which, you know, which ran for two seasons. There's been a fake documentary about him. He's been on a fake chat show. Uh, you know, Mid Morning Matters shows his radio show on, on, on little webisodes. And people wonder, would he translate to the big screen? Would an Alan Partridge film work? Would it be funny? Would it live up to the quality that, you know, they've said over the last few years? And it absolutely does. In the first five minutes, which is basically just a Mid-Morning Matters episode, with the, the dialogue, there are so many great new Partridge quotes. Mm. The lexicon has been refreshed. And uh, I, it's such a relief. I think, I came out of thinking, this is as good a movie, an Alan Partridge movie, as you could wish for. I really just think they nailed it. If you don't particularly love Alan Partridge or you don't particularly get the joke, you're not going to like it particularly, I don't think. James can probably speak to that yeah. soon, but not yet. And <laughs> But, you know, I'm not a fanatical Partridge fan. I really, I love him and his stuff and his character down the years. It seemed like he was kind of reaching a point where he was going to be slightly more abundant. He'd left, the story would come to an end. And props to Coogan and Neil and Rob Gibbons, the writers, Peter Bainham, Ian Uchi, for reinvigorating it with mid-morning matters and with I, the places of my life is hilarious and with this movie which just made me laugh an awful lot it's got some great moments in it and I think a lot of it all boils down to Coogan's acting ability because he does, does things with his face that capture this partridge kind of like outlook on the world where he's, he's you can see it like a calculator he's working out scenarios to his own advantage and Coogan can sell those little thoughts through little things that he does with his face which take you back to like the silent movie stars I think you know mm. Chaplin did it 
Buster Keaton can mm. do it. In the sense that there's bits that are actually funny, like a moment, you know, he loses his trousers when he's trying to escape from the building. It's funny. There's a bit where Lynn comes into his man shed and you just see him, you know, he's pretending to be doing some e- business emails, but you can just see these boobs reflecting in his glasses because he's been looking at online <laughs> naughty business, as he'd probably call it. Those aren't the funniest bits, you know. They're slapstick moments that are kind of amusing, but it's just those little kind of pots partridge bits i would say that's where it stumbles actually where you mention him losing his trousers there are a couple of moments which i felt didn't ring true to partridge's comedy ethos where they seem a little too broad in a kind of crude way and i'd rather they kept it a little bit more sophisticated my biggest impression as i left was that this was a movie that was loved as it was made it was loved as it was scripted and you really felt that every line was honed and crafted and coogan retook that take and he retook that take and he got it just right it is not perfect cinema i have i have some issues with its third act uh, i joked about it earlier and you know it's not entirely flawless but if you're an Alan fan go and see it in the cinema and see it with people don't see this don't wait for the dvd and watch it by yourself go and watch it with friends go and watch it in the big screen you're talking about it being not entirely successful as a film and it was very quite very low budget but uh, and does have a scrappiness to it there's a there's a scrappy quality to it there's a there's a something that happens right at the very end of the film that that hasn't been set up in any way, shape, or form, and I know that a subplot that set that thing up was cut from the movie. Um, so little things like that, but if you're prepared to overlook that, in terms of just sheer laughs and the brilliance of the dialogue, I mean, every time we mention Partridge on the Empire Twitter feed, our, our timeline is clogged for the next hour, two hours, with people quoting Partridge just incessantly. And Partridge is one of those characters where uh, you just read a quote and you imagine the scene you imagine Alan saying in that voice and it just makes you laugh and I think this film has will provide at least another 20 or 30 great gems uh, that people will be quoting on our timeline for the next three or four years which is great and now a voice from someone who doesn't yes. like Alan Partridge you know what I'm, g- I'm going to keep my own counsel a little bit on this just because I don't I don't get it I don't it's not my sense of humour I think it's the thing and I think if if you're not a huge fan of the TV show if it leaves you cold then just avoid this like the plague I laughed once I can't remember what it was it was a mild chortle rather than a guffaw but that's not to say it isn't good I mean it's an interesting character Coogan plays it extraordinarily well I think Phil is absolutely right he's an incredibly expressive character though I would argue that Rowan Atkinson does that kind of thing better and I'm not talking about Mr Bean Um, Edmund Blackadder I think is my favourite I think British comedy character him and Basil Fawlty and I would take either of them over Adam Partridge but you know what if you love the TV show if you're a fan of that kind of humour Funny humour. Uh, then, uh, then I, I think you'll love it. That's the most passive-aggressive review we've had <laughs> on this show for a long time. <laughs> to summarise, <laughs> well, if you like that sort of thing, and I'm not judging you, but I am judging yeah. you. Yeah, that's my review. <laughs> James Dyer, it. enemy of fun. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Well, James, you've had the last word on Alpha Papa for some reason, but uh, we did give it four stars. It is hilarious. It is one of the funniest films of the year, if not the funniest. So do go and check it out uh, as soon as you can. Alan demands it. Lots of films out this week. Uh, Smurfs 2 open on Wednesday. Check out our website for the review because, frankly, Wild Horses couldn't drive me to that Smurfing thing. Uh, So I don't think any of us have seen it, to be honest. But who knows? If you have kids, they might like it. Uh, The Heat. Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy playing female cops. They don't get on, and they do get on. That also opened on Wednesday. What do we make of the heat? See what they're trying to do with this film, which is to create a lethal weapon meets bridesmaids type scenario. You can kind of see the Hollywood elevator pitch for this. And they've got two great talents. Paul Feig, obviously behind the camera, was the man behind Bridesmaids. 
does a really solid job. It's Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock's film, though. McCarthy, I think, is fantastic. I would suggest that it'd be nice to see her given other sorts of roles in the near future. They seem to have struck gold with this one particular sweary, unpredictable, crazy, slightly Mel Gibson-y kind of female comedy persona and it would be good to see her branch out a little bit from that because over the period of a film that she's selling every scene it becomes a little jarring towards the end yeah and and she's shown on Mike and Molly which is a show I'm sure not many people watch over here but I've caught a few episodes and she plays a completely different character in that in that show and um, when she was on Saturday Night Live uh, last year she was astonishingly versatile in her range and yeah I, I think you're right and Gilmore Girls where she was an excellent chef Yes, wow. she was. Maybe. Oui. But on the big screen, people are trying to sort of, they're trying to tap that bridesmaid's character a little bit. Too much, perhaps. But yeah, hopefully she'll get to show off a little bit more of her range and they'll stop photoshopping her in posters. This is the thing that puts me off going to this film. I'm so offended on behalf of just her. On, really. on behalf of Adobe. No, on, yeah, on behalf of people with eyes and people who work at Adobe. The Photoshop, <laughs> the thing that's most notable about the publicity for this film is that the Photoshop on her face in particular. Melissa McCarthy's face. It looks like someone's taken a skin tone spray can and just blasted it at her chin. You can't see where the neck ends. It's just kind of a mess. I was only going to add that to the photoshopping that it's the grossest hypocrisy and whoever is responsible for that decision should be ashamed of themselves because, frankly, the film sells her as this crazy, unpredictable, yes, yeah, she's overweight, she drinks too much, she does mad things, that's the funny character. It plums that for comedy. So then to take the poster and try and make her look more conform to this aesthetic that they've decided they need to do for audiences or whatever, I think is appalling and disgraceful. As far as the film's concerned, it's got lots of funny moments. Sandra Bullock, we know she's fantastic in these sorts of roles. She plays the prim cop. She plays the um, Danny Glover to the Melissa McCarthy, Mel Gibson. And that's pretty much all you need to know. There's a plot, it comes into play, but it's not really <laughs> about the plot. It's more about the craziness. And there's a lot of fun to be had watching this film. We gave it three stars. Cool. Fantastic. Three stars for the heat. Am I sensing it's about two hours long? It's quite long. That Yeah, uh, yeah I had a, a slight issue with that. It doesn't need to be two hours long. It needs to be 90 minutes long. And I think that extra half an hour saps you a bit because it is like being hit over the head with a wok uh, towards the end. It's just too much. It's got another penis pistol moment, which is just, again, getting a bit tiresome. It, stop doing this stuff. It's not funny, particularly. There are funny things in it, though. Lots of them. And I think we should probably mention uh, very, very briefly uh, Dennis Freena, who, who passed away uh, last week. And, of course, was so amazing at Jimmy Serrano in The Midnight Run or his um, uh, cousin Avi in Snatch. And just was a fantastic, fantastic actor. He was a cop, a Chicago cop, uh, became an actor, and he brought a real level of veracity and verisimilitude to his, to his performances. Uh, could swear like nobody else in, in cinema. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of my favourite character actors. Very sadly missed. I love Dennis Freena I was heartbroken by that he's mm. so young and he just makes me laugh so much and you're right he's the best wearer and get shorty I think absolutely or uh, or Crime Story if you can find the original Michael Mann series Crime Story Midnight Run's easy to find it is it is that's to be fair to be fair and it is absolutely peerless uh, so there we go um, anyway let's move on with the eagerly ret- awaited return of uh, Ryan Gosling and Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, it's only God Forgives, which is uh, Brutal Deluxe. It's a, a tie-set tale of vengeance, bloodshed, and very few words. What do we make of this, guys? This is, I think, the definition of a divisive film. This is a film that you will either loathe or love. I wonder whether you'll fall into this category. You'll only find out by watching it. So let's warn you slash encourage you with this 
brief review. Ryan Gosling plays an expat who is running a Bangkok uh, boxing club in, guess where, Bangkok, uh, to cover for his family's drug business. He's got a brother uh, called Billy uh, who does the most reprehensible, horrible things to people in Bangkok. He's eventually brought uh, to task by an avenging angel uh, an avenging angel character he's a newcomer to western audiences he is a uh, a man called and this is where i always get the names vithaya pansaringam i am so sorry for getting that horribly wrong he's an extraordinary presence in this film and he takes uh, this billy character down a peg or three into a coffin no less <laughs> and it's up to uh, Julian Thompson, Gosling's character, to deal with the fallout after his mum, who's played by Kristen Scott Thomas, in the most amazing kind of baby doll, plastic, pumped up, artificial breasts character, comes to Bangkok to sort shit out. And it's the confrontation between Gosling's character and the character of this katana-wielding, avenging angel cop, who doesn't so much bring people into jail as slice them into blade style with a massive sword uh, and it's all delivered in winding reference typical how can i put this style it's it's very him it's a none more him film I'd add to that two things. First of all, Nicholas Winding Refn does not want you to like his film. You either have to love it or you have to hate it. I think he'd rather you hated it than you just felt, mm, quite enjoyed that. Second thing is, if you're expecting this to be drive in any way, shape or form, forget about it. It's got some common ground. It's beautifully shot. It's got a Cliff Martinez score. That's about it. It's much closer to Valhalla Rising, a sort of existential, slowly paced, languorous is the word we used in our review. I think that's pretty pretty good way of capturing it it's a fever nightmare is what it is it's a feeling that you may be trapped in some kind of strange dungeon and again that sounds bad but it's a real experience movie uh, both the score and the cinematography kind of envelop you and 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 kind of make you a, a weird form of frightened it is not i would say a pleasurable film you don't walk out and go oh I'll watch that again in a couple of weeks but it is very strange experience and i found myself liking it despite myself it's not the kind of film that i normally do enjoy but there was just something about the way it was delivered that made me feel um quite peculiar and um it affected me quite strongly yeah kind of you can feel it he's he's liking it's taking acid it, it kind of a, you can feel it sort of washing over your subconscious almost when you're watching it um it's very violent in parts uh, and he's dedicated to alejandro jodorowsky so you know that's kind of what you're going to get if you know jodorowsky's films he's an inspiration for this one so don't expect anything that's going to be linear or heavily plotted no. it's a mood piece in the strictest sense it's an exploration of guilt and if you treat it as such i think you'll get a lot out of it and everyone's evil and we gave it five stars we did give it five stars to say about to sum up how divisive this movie is uh someone in the office i can't remember who it, said, who it was came back from the movie and said this is uh this is either a five-star movie or a one-star movie and we've given it five stars but there are other people in this room who think it's a one-star movie i will say nothing more about that other than it's me all right, anyway, Bruce Willis swung at the town last week and you just couldn't get him to shut up. No wonder he was in such a good mood for Red 2. A sequel to his OAP action movie Red is out this week and reunites him with John Malkovich and Helen Mirren while throwing in another couple of wrinklies, including Anthony Hopkins and the not wrinkly in any way, shape or form, Catherine Cedar-Jones, into the mix. Right. The first was surprised. Right, that was very Sergeant Major. Right, the first was fun. Discuss this one, James. Oh, sorry. Yes, um, this is of course the sequel to 2010's film uh, directed by Robert Schwenke, wasn't it? Is it Schwenke? Schwenke. 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 Okay. <laughs> Schwenke. Schwenke. Uh, yes, him. Yes. Um, and he, in fact, uh, has directed R.I.P.D., which opened, I believe, opposite 
Oh. Red 2, didn't it? And died on its arse. So there you go. Which, Which also had Mary Louise Parker in it. So it's, it's a whole incestuous mess. But anyway, uh, this was Dean Pariseau, uh who directed this one, the Galaxy Quest director. And it's mu- honestly, it's much the same setup as the first film. Uh, they are still retired, extremely dangerous. They are, once again, ambushed by black ops assassins, uh, which pull them out of retirement. Uh, and it's all to do with some... Uh, some mission they went on back in the 80s during the Cold War which has had some sort of unknown repercussions and they're pulled back in to kind of solve it all and sort it all out do you know what it really doesn't matter what it's about I think <laughs> no it really doesn't I think one of the, the the problems you get with a lot of modern action films is that the, the plot is seen as a luxury item there specifically to join the dots that are the action set pieces the latest Die Hard is an egregious offender in this area the thing with this film is that is the case but it doesn't matter because it's about the interplay between the characters it's about the humour everyone making this film seems to be having an alarming amount of fun and it's really hard not to enjoy it as well I mean uh, Alan Mirren is absolutely inspired as uh, sort of British sort of uh, assassin Victoria I love how she said that she loved playing these these two films because she doesn't have to do any acting that's troubling because she's sort of casually sociopathic I was found in this Uh, it's quite terrifying the first movie was famous for having a, a very enjoyable shot of Bruce Willis's character performing a handbrake turn yeah. the car spins round and as the door opens he just walks out the car <laughs> pops out his gun, gun and then nails someone in the head <laughs> apparently that happens three times in this film is that the case? Uh, not, not in exactly the same way. Uh, there is a lot of handbrake turnery jumping in and out of cars. The dialogue on the interplay, specifically between Bruce Willis and Mary Louise Parker, and also Bruce Willis and Helen Mirren, is extraordinarily good. John Malkovich is absolutely genius. This is completely burned out, demented former operative. Uh, and Anthony Hopkins sort of has um, added to the mix as a kind of adult scientist in this one. You, you know what? It is fun. Jo- I genuinely enjoyed it more than the first one. I think it's funnier than the first one. I think uh, Mary Louise Parker's Sarah adds a new dimension because she, if everyone remembers, she was uh, the call centre girl in the first one. In this, she's Bruce's girlfriend. He's very much trying to sort of like wrap her in cotton wool and keep her safe. And she's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. She wants a gun. She wants to get out there. She wants to shoot people. Uh, and that dynamic's a lot of fun. Uh, she she gets the lion's share of the laughs, I would say, actually. Oh, really? She, yeah, she does. Uh, she does very well. Her and Helen Mirren get the bulk of it. But it's it's a very enjoyable, enjoyable film. Um, you know, it's not sort of a, a masterpiece, but it's a lot more fun than a lot of comparable action. Yeah, these films, are, these are characters. The first film, I thought these are characters are, that are, I could enjoy spending another movie with. Yeah. If they if they nailed the same tone and the same sort of beats, which they did. And that was fun. Obviously, the first film had you know Morgan Freeman in it and mm. Richard Dreyfuss, people like that uh, aren't around this time. Interesting, Carl Urban's not back because he yeah. was he was one of the best elements of the first film. I thought as the uh, the the, the uh, seemingly bad guy Jason him who actually turns around and becomes a member of their team by the end if you ha- yes that's a spoiler but it, honestly it's red <laughs> well Neil McDonough <laughs> kind of takes that uh, oh does he yeah okay but but not because he doesn't end the same way but he's essentially the uh, the guy slightly psychotic guy who's trying to uh, to track them down oh cool uh, but just following on from what you were saying about the heat I think uh, that the heat's photoshopping pales in comparison to the egregious crimes against pixels that is the red two poster I don't know if anyone's seen it on the underground uh, I, I can't actually account for how this happens I can only assume that none of the cast could be bothered to turn up for the special shot so they had um, other people do it and then had the work experience person add the cast's heads Catherine Zeta-Jones in particular looks like some kind of weird half-dead alien in this poster it's like five ghosts are walking towards you it's a st- 
astonishingly badly put together. I don't know who was responsible for that, but it's 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 absolutely egregious. Anyway, three stars. Go see the film. <laughs> yes, it yeah. is good film. Go see it. Don't watch the poster. Yes. So moving on to our last one of the uh, of the of the week. It's a big week this week. Uh, is the Conjuring, which is uh, the latest movie from James Wan, who's about to move into action with Fast Seven, but he's very much a horror guy. He's the guy who launched Saw. He's the guy who did uh, Insidious with Insidious Chapter Two coming out in September. But this week it's Conjuring which is based on a true story and it's a spooky haunted house tale and because it's a spooky haunted house tale all of us wusses haven't seen it so I'm going to rely very very swiftly on the Empire Review written by Owen Williams uh, four stars who we've given it and the verdict is a strong cast and an atmosphere of real dread meaning that despite a catalogue of immediately recognisable ghost devices the country amounts to more than the sum of its scary parts if it's Wan's farewell to horror his other farewell to horror notwithstanding it's a darkly powerful final word there you go The Conjuring starring Lily Taylor Patrick Wilson Fira Farmiga uh, and Ron Livingston that's a fantastic cast for horror films so uh, do go and check that one out four stars uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by another Alan Partridge alum Mr. Armando Iannucci and the man who was Giles in Buffy and that coffee advert bloke from those coffee adverts Anthony Stewart Head and that's not all. We also have an amazing podcast special with the creator of Arrested Development, Mitch Hurwitz, which goes up on Monday. Yes, thumbs up from Ali. Uh, and it's very, very funny. Nothing to do with us. It's all on him. Until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off somewhere top secret. What was the, uh, the URL for that Days of Future Past website again? Uh, www.traskindustries.com Interesting. See you next week. Bim bim bidim bim bidim bim.